Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome back to another episode of The Jury's Out. This is Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. Today, we're going to continue our conversation about pretrial motions. It's probably worth saying, you know, a lot of attorneys do file huge packets of motions and judges are human beings. And there is something about respecting the court's energy and time. And I think judges will respect that when you do hone it down to the things that really matter and the specific issues involving real evidence. You can see it in some judges' faces after a while. If you're arguing for long periods of time, some of them wear out more than others. And you can see some of them getting glassy-eyed and like, how much longer are we going to be here? And yeah. and then you might not have delivered your best I have motion yet. other things on my docket today. Like, why am so, I arguing 70 motions about? <laughs> right. So that's another reason I think deliver your best motion first is because people are more fresh. Maybe the judges already heard four motions that morning anyway. And, you know, your best motion first also, your best, most succinctly stated arguments right off the bat, and the longer you keep talking after that, they're going to forget those succinctly stated best arguments first. Three reasons why you win stated as well as you can and ready to give the court the case that says why you win, the depot that supports what you're saying, and stop. This is a good time, I think, to drop in something that I use on complex motions, motions for summary judgment, to dismiss, things where you got to win it. So I always now, always bring in, and I don't know what to call it, a cheat sheet, piece of paper, letting the judge know where my arguments are going. It might be one sheet of paper. And John, it reminds me of what you do. You carry around an index card with your case. The it's old got, index card. It's I got, got one in my pocket right now, Eric. It's got the name of the case, the parties, and some basic information. It's the same idea that when you hand the judge, it's almost like a, a roster of the important parties and then it talks about my argument, and it's, it's as succinct as I can get it. I will be arguing A, B, and C, and maybe I'll put the key case. So it's like one page, and I'll hand it to the judge, I'll hand it to the other parties. I can't tell you the number of times I've been delighted, like halfway through an argument, there might be an, you know half an hour argument, I see the judge looking at that sheet, and the other side hasn't done that, and they're looking at mine, and that's guiding them through the argument, and it's actually guiding them through the framing of the case, my framing of the case, too. There's no rule that says you can't do that. I mean, it's important to think about what the rules don't prohibit and to take advantage of that. I know we talked about including in the written motion, you know, all the exhibits that the judge needs, key cases. But for the oral argument, I use this on all complex cases. I think it's been a big help to me. I get frustrated when I'm in court and I see lawyers not do this and I want to walk up and whisper into their ear. You already won. Stop talking. <laughs> can't the, take yes yeah, the, for an the answer. More, you can't take yes for an answer. The more you're talking, the judge is reconsidering that they already like basically said, you're going to win. I've seen it <laughs> where the court has ruled and the parties are walking away from the bench and the winning attorney turns around to say one more thing and loses it. Yeah. So what do you think about this situation where – and it's happened to me, it's probably happened to you, where you're 100% convinced that the judge just got it wrong. And you're leaving the pretrial, and there's a like a critical piece of evidence that is relevant for six different reasons or whatever, but it's one where you just feel like the judge doesn't grasp the issue. What do you do? 
there's a fork in the road. Have you delivered clearly your best arguments already? Sometimes it happens where you think, I wish I had made this more clear. Well, I always think that, especially when you lose, you know, when yeah, you right. lose some emotion here. <laughs> yeah. Something right. went wrong. I but, messed up. And, 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 and again, I'm not dissing the judge. I'm, you know, the judge, you might have the judge ruling on 40 motions that afternoon. And the judge doesn't know the case the way you know the case. The judge hasn't read the cases that you've read. But there'll be a ruling, something that's not case dispositive, but it's a real key issue for you. Good piece of evidence. What I try to do is... I'll let some time pass because a lot of those things are revisited anyway. And at a certain point, what I'll do is I'll approach the court. And if it's something that we're not going to address in opening, we might not need to get it for a couple, two or three days. I'll just ask the court's permission to revisit an issue whenever the court has time, something like that. And I mean, sometimes all you can do is prepare the best offer of proof that you can. And I think the less you have bothered the court before that, with telling the judge you think they're wrong over and over and over again. And maybe they've had time to, you know, they haven't thought about it and you didn't bother them about it and you put on a really, really good offer of proof. I think you have a much better chance of them going, you know what? I didn't understand the case as well as I do now at that point. You convinced me. But if you filed two motions to reconsider before that, <laughs> they're, right, like, they're right. not going and, back. You know, Tim, Tim and you and I had a case a few years ago, three or four years ago, and it was an issue on the punitive, it was on submitting punitive damages in the case. We were convinced we had a submissible punitive case and the court didn't see it our way. And we just, we argued it vigorously, both sides, and the court didn't see it our way. And it didn't affect what evidence really was coming in the case. And we were two or three days into the case. And at the end of one of the days, I approached the court and said, if you could, I said, I'd like just to have 10 minutes, 15 minutes of your time to revisit this issue. And the judge said, oh, you want to make a record? I said, no, not really, judge. I want to convince you. <laughs> I want to convince you that you made the wrong decision. And he got it. He laughed. And so the cool thing about it was he patiently listened to me for 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, and didn't rule from the bench. He took it home. And I don't know, maybe he made up his mind already, but out of courtesy, I guess, to us, he came in the next morning and he said, I did get copies of the cases and I did read those cases and I studied it carefully and I gave it a second review and my ruling is not going to change, <laughs> you know, but it made me feel good that the judge, I felt like I was really being listened to and he really did read the cases. It was all in how I approached the court. It wasn't like, okay, they're making a record. I said, judge, I want to convince you that you made the wrong ruling. Yeah. But anyway, we didn't get the punitives, but it turned out well. Maybe if we did, the appellate court would have taken away the good verdict we got on compensatory. <laughs> yeah. right. So well, maybe it turned yeah, out who knows? as well and, as and You know could. what? Here, I'm saying he was wrong, and maybe yeah. maybe I was wrong. I'll, I'll give him that credit. Well, okay. you know, there's, there's two ways to look at it. You know, if I were a judge, I'm just imagining, and someone said, okay, I listened to the arguments, I made a ruling, and then someone's going to come up and say, you got it wrong. I want to know why I should redo this work because I already did this work. Yeah. And so one option, instead of, you know, suggesting to the judge, the judge just got it wrong. Think of some distinguishing, like there's new evidence now or judge, I might have not properly or best communicated what I was trying to say. I'd love to just give you a chance to hear one more thing. And I know you made a considered decision, but telling a judge they're wrong, I think you need kind of like, why do you want to reopen this? And you might want to be thinking about what you're going to say about that. You mentioned earlier credibility, and there is nothing more important than your credibility, period. Nothing. And that goes with jurors, maybe more so with judges. 
you're never going to see those jurors again. You're going to run into the judge you're in front of. You're going to see that judge again and again and again. And guess what? That judge is going to talk to other judges about how you did, your presentation, whether you were credible or not. What kind of impression you make on that judge is going to be shared with other judges on the bench. So I think one of the things, don't file bullshit motions, number one. Secondly, if the other side has a motion that's well taken and you've researched it and you've looked at it, concede it. I mean, I think it goes a long way toward your credibility with the court. I've had several cases where we've conceded certain things. We don't fight everything just because the other side's proposing it and therefore we have to oppose it. And it does help. I mean, it does. I think it helps on all motions, but on the close calls too. I had a case recently where I thought we did a better job of presenting the court both sides of the issue and had briefed it a lot better. During argument, I had the court ask me, you know, do you agree with the law? I mean, because what I was saying the law was and what my opponent was really couldn't be reconciled. And the court was like, is that the law? And I said, Your Honor, that's not my understanding of the law. And here's three cases with it. But it helps you tremendously to help the court every chance you can do their job because it's a very difficult job. They haven't lived with the case like you have. But also don't do anything ever to diminish or harm your credibility because that will come back to haunt you, not just on that motion that day in that case, in the future but case. it'll follow you forever and you won't shake it. Yeah. It also makes the practice of law more fun to know that you know, you're coming back to the judge for the third or fourth time on a case. And the judge looks at your group coming up to the bench and goes, oh, good to see you guys again. What's up? You know, how can I help you? I look for those compliments. I want the good feedback that the judge is not seeing us and going, oh, no, these guys again. You know, when you hear things like, oh, that was well argued. Thank you. You know, I'll take that into consideration. Things like that. It's much more fun to go home at night after you hear someone say, oh, that was good. That was helpful. And think that we'll work again someday. You know, we'll, we'll see that judge again someday. And the other thing I think the courts appreciate are resolving issues, getting along with your opponent. I mean, put yourself in the judge's position. You're there trying to make rulings. You're trying to get it right. The last thing you want to hear are two groups of people that are arguing about everything, just fighting, and that's not where it's at. That shouldn't happen. Unfortunately, sometimes it's very, very difficult to get along with your opponent, but you need to do everything within your power to make sure it stays civil, professional. Don't be fighting about things just for the sake of fighting about them. I mean, I think that's a dead end. One of the most frustrating things I've ever encountered is when your opponent is up there playing free and loose with the facts or the law. And it's like drip, drip, drip of bullshit. So you're thinking, I got to correct all this stuff, but I want to take the high road. And a judge is going to see us bickering and think, I don't like the way these guys are arguing. And how do you navigate these situations where you think the other side is playing? Well, Eric, Eric, I, here's what I do. And I do it the same way, no matter who the opponent is. If I'm opening my mouth saying something, whether it's a case site or a document or an excerpt from a deposition, I've got it right there. I never speak in generalities. You know, judge, there's evidence of this and there's evidence of that. I'm very specific, very concrete. I will say this person is the CEO of the company or this person, here's his position. He was produced as the corporate rep. And I will even say to make it a point on page 167, line three through 13 of his deposition, he said this. Yeah, I do this. And thing. that's not the time. Anytime you're in front of a court to talk in generalities, because that's what you're going to get. No, judge, that's not the evidence. Yes, it is the evidence. So I am like hyper factually specific every time I open my mouth. And in doing that, sometimes it's difficult to not get emotional, but judges don't ever want to hear the L word. He's lying. That's a lie. They don't want to hear that. That's not true. 
sometimes I'll write a post-it note for myself. Like when you start, like give every excuse for the lawyer to have gotten it wrong without making it personal to them. So your honor, there's quite a few things I'm going to have to cover based on that argument. And we all get very busy and have too many cases. And then, you know, sometimes forget exactly what the evidence was in the case. So I've got it all here. This particular factual issue came up and it was suggested that the evidence might be this. Here you go. Here's page yeah, page 169, lines 3 through 13. I can show it to you. That's what the evidence is. You called him a liar without calling him a liar. Well, right. And I mean, that's the professional and right way to do it. Because if they're not saying something accurately, you do have to fix it. And the court's going to get it. And the court will probably get more mad at your opposing counsel if you do it that way than if you stand up and just start saying Apparently, we can't believe anything out of this person's mouth. Yeah, and it's more effective. I mean, even with the jury, your impression of what the person said in the deposition, what did the person say word for word? What was the question? What was the answer? It's my assumption there's only room for one angry person in the room. And if you're angry and arguing, you almost look comical in a way. And so it's not good. It's not a good reflection on you. But when you plant the right facts with the citations in front of the judge, you can sometimes see the judge getting mad. That's the way you want to play it. Eric, you had, and I hadn't thought about this, one thing we haven't touched on, you had some notes about the actual visualization aspects of your motion, like typography and things like that. You have a yeah. couple points to make about that. I never think about that. Yeah, we had a, a recent podcast with Matthew Buttrick on typography. He wrote a book called Typography for Lawyers, and I've taken it to heart recently. In fact, there's a lecture coming up with the appellate committee of the local bar on this topic. But the local rules and the court rules for the state in most states don't specify very much about what you have to do. Mm -hmm. So there will be rules about you got to double space and you got to have it be at least 12 point. Your margin have to be one inch. Sometimes there's an absurdly large required font size. Like in one of our courts, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals is 14 point type, which is ridiculous. It looks ugly and it's not readable, but that's kind of it. There's not many rules about how the brief has to look. And so you can employ all kinds of tricks to make it more readable. One of those being make those margins big because there's sometimes no word count and you're going to wince when you first do it. Like, why would I make my margins an inch and a half on each side? Look at it. It's beautiful. It's much more readable. Each page seems less dense. Exactly. So for the court, it seems like less work. It does. And yeah. you can digest it easier. That's the whole thing. There's some people that write in big blocks. And then what I find myself doing all the time is taking a pen trying to underline things and arrows and like what's important here. Well, you can do that for the judge. You know, what if you take your ideas and you craft them in a way that a judge with a pen thinks, okay, she doesn't have to do any of that for you because it's laid out so nicely. I think about the uh, metaphor of going through a cave and not exploring an unknown cave, but you know, these big touristy caves and they have handrails, they have lights, they have diagrams about here you are and all that. And I want my brief, my written brief, to be just like that. So everybody looking at it will immediately know, oh, okay, three arguments, here they are, it's all laid out. And oh my gosh, here's the diagram. You know, there's no rule yeah. that says you can't put a I diagram. I copy and paste in diagrams and images rather than making the court go back to the exhibit. Or summary tables, you know, where you say, here's the three arguments. I just filed a brief where I thought, and I still believe, my opponent did not respond to 12 important bits of evidence. They're ignoring it because it's a difficult fact for them to get around. So my reply brief had a table where I said, here are 12 things that I said in the first brief. Here's the response. And I put on their column, silence, 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 silence. They had a sur reply where they go, 
oh, it looks like Eric thinks a picture is worth a thousand words. I'm thinking, it is. Yes, it, <laughs> it, it you is. Are correct. It can be. Thanks for highlighting it. <laughs> yeah, again. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, there's there's a lot of things you can do with a brief to make it beautiful. And you might think, oh, why would we do that? We're lawyers. We just want to get the arguments down. Our job is to persuade. And if you can do that with how your motion looks, there's no argument that, I mean, if you have bad appearance, if your brief looks somewhat ugly, you could be hurting yourself because it's less likely to be read seriously. Yeah. And then on the other hand, this is what Matthew Butterick and I talked about. What if it's 1% more likely that you'll win this case based upon your brief looking really good? What if it's 1%? And what if you file 500 motions in a year? And let's assume half of those are closed cases. But one day of reading his book, which is free online, it's called Typography for Lawyers. One day of just going through that and incorporating 10 things that you now do differently. And now it's just cookie cutter. Every time you file a brief, you're thinking, oh, there's things I can do to make it look more readable. One last thing, I know I'm off on a rant here, but the legal industry in the United States is the number one publishing industry in the United States. More stuff is published by lawyers every year than anybody else. And it seems like we don't care about the way our stuff looks as a general rule. So anyway, I would frame it as an opportunity that when you get your content down, when you figure out your ideas and what you need to say, take a bit of time and make it look beautiful and readable. Because in my mind, I'm thinking it's probably more than 1%, but even if it's 1%, it's worth chewing through this. You're you know, certainly not hurting yourself by doing it. You can only be helping yourself by doing it. Right. You know, along the same line, there's a lot of good writing about how to write. One of my favorites is Brian Garner's The Winning Brief. Things like framing your issues in succinct fashion, getting rid of jargon, writing short sentences written in the active voice rather than passive. You know, I used to hear that in college, active voice. Man, it makes your writing pop when you do that. Get rid of all the throat clearing phrases and don't stop just because you got the right case. Think about why that's a good idea, too. Don't just say this case requires that you, you know, because the judge might be thinking, yeah, but I don't feel it. Yeah, I'm I'm reading it, but I'm not feeling it. Yeah. Explain why that decision was right. Not just it says I win. And here's why it has good reasoning. That segues into something, Tim. I'll ask you what happens when you don't have the law? You got a very weak position and you're left with equities. Then I'm arguing about the equitable situation. And if the court asks me, yeah, but isn't this what the case law says? I say, yeah, I would totally understand, Judge, if you feel obligated to follow what that case says. But it's absolutely not fair. And it takes a case like this sometimes, like the case that is now in front of you, to show the inequity of that decision. And nobody's ever going to have an opportunity to take up that issue unless I preserve why I think the law is wrong on that case. And it's just not fair, Judge. And there's going to have to be some judge that's brave enough to say it first. And I'm hoping it's you. That's awesome. So what do the two of you think about tone? I don't know how else to put it. You're about to go talk to the judge. Sincerity. Quiet sincerity. I think of it as educational. Don't argue. Tim, do you think about that, about how to look and how to present? Yeah. And I mean, you know, I can become very passionate. and and Is that right? Yeah. Lose that tone that I should have from time to time and then recognize like, oh, the judge isn't liking this. I need to probably calm down a little bit. But I think that's right. You know, they don't want to put up with someone screaming and hollering and raising their voice. And the less you do it, sometimes if your voice raises a little bit, if you don't do it all the time, 
then it can add extra emphasis that you really feel strongly about this particular issue. There's a parallel with the typography. You know, you can add the underlines or the italics or the all bold. Yeah. And if you do it too much and everything in the brief is emphasized, and therefore nothing's emphasized. nothing. Right. And so in your argument, if you go in ranting the whole time, then nothing can be emphasized. You're always at the high pitch and it can be, you know, draining on a judge. When I was younger, I think I lost some motions that I should have won because I was a really good technical lawyer. I got the cases right. I wrote it properly, but I got beat by people on cases I thought I should have won on motions because they just looked like they cared more about their clients and they were a little more gravitas. Like this is important. This is everything was very important. And I was looking technical you know, you want to look sincere and I want to look like an educator, but I somehow want to convey, this is not an exercise where I'm just making money. This matters. I'm representing a person and this will affect. I think the facts convey that the summary of the case, those types of things. It's what we talk about in terms of persuading a jury. Nothing is different when you're in front of a judge versus a jury. It's the same things, the same things that work, the emotion, it's the intellect, the logic. You know, Abe Lincoln was asked if he would rather have a jury trial or a bench trial. And he immediately responded, who's the judge? (laughs) Yeah. So if you're doing any differently, you're probably insulting the jury. And let me just emphasize this again. When you're in front of a court or a judge, the big advantage is it's not the last time you're going to be in front of that judge. You're going to be in front of that judge many, many times over the course of your career. Every time you're in front of a judge, it's a chance to audition for that judge, to build your reputation, your character, to be credible, and it will pay dividends, incredible dividends in the future. And of course, the flip side is if a judge or a court finds you not to be credible, it's an unmitigated disaster, and it will continue to haunt you for as long as you're practicing. I would add two footnotes to this. I teach law students, and we have oral argument of motions. And this reminds me when I was young and nervous, but what they do is they get up there and they rapid fire, spit out their lines and they want to sit down. And I have to remind them, your job is not to say your stuff and sit down. It's to engage the judge, look at the judge and where the judge looks like the judge is, you can see it with the tip of a head sometimes, like the judge is going, I don't know if I'm buying what you're selling on that one. And to go right at it, you got to go to the fear every time. So that's one thing they seem to have an epiphany on. The other is, I remember in my first year, I felt like not the full player, like somebody came in with 30 years of experience against me and I'm a brand new attorney and I felt like I was not a full player at the table. And I think you have to get over that really fast. And maybe the best way to do that is just remember, you got a client back home that you're representing. They're expecting you to you know, stand up for them. And I think that helps a lot of that go away. All right, today's topic was motions. We covered motions in limine as well as motions that take place months or years before the trial written motions and oral argument. We covered a lot of stuff today, but that's today's topic. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next time with another topic. This is Eric Veith. Tim Cronin. This is John Simon. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.